sure that there'd be things that we'd avoid. And so working through a text, verse by verse, you know, and all that means that we have to address things that otherwise we might not choose to do so. The, the controversial doctrine, the, the hard to understand passage, the, the uncomfortable topic. And this is good for us. It's good for David and I as pastors. It's good for us as a, as a congregation because it means that we're not just getting our, our ears tickled with the things that we want to hear. It means that we're not just riding a hobby horse to death. It means that we are hearing God's word in all of its encouragement and challenge as it forms us as his people. And so if that's one of the great values of preaching sequentially through books of the Bible, that there's no avoiding the hard topics or passages, one of the challenges of preaching this way is that there's no avoiding the hard topics and passages. And that is where we are today. Um, I don't want to preach on this passage, <laughs> you know? Uh, and if it, uh, I would literally, if the choice was up to me, I would literally never choose to preach on it. But as we work through the book of Judges, today we come face to face with what I suspect is probably one of the darkest passages in, in the scriptures and in Israel's history. Um, and that's saying, having been working through the book of Judges, which is far from a you know, bright and shiny, you know, happy and rosy kind of book. So our, our passage today marks an absolute low point in the life of God's people, and there is, there's little that's good in it. And as I said, I would not choose to it, but here we are. Last week, Judges 17 and 18. So this week, Judges 19. There's no avoiding it. And for all that it's hard and unpleasant, as I said before, it is good for us. It is good for us to hear all of God's word, especially the bits that we don't like, the bits that make us uncomfortable. Having said all that, I'm glad that Kids Church is back um, this week. Um, but uh, it is a content advisory warning that um, it's going to get pretty challenging along the way. Um, I do want to say then up front in, in seriousness that some of our passage today may, may be triggering for, for some of you. If you've not read ahead to know what's coming, if you're not understanding what all the, the kind of um, drama is about, it's a story of rape and abuse uh, and there's no avoiding that and tragically that is a part of too many of your stories too and so I want to say I intend to be partially sensitive as I can because such experiences are heartbreaking and devastating and wrong um, and I also you know as a, as a spoiler alert to intend to lead us to Jesus who is the perfect man who restores dignity and value who brings healing and compassion and who ultimately will make all things right and new and good again and so to offer hope to those of you for whom this has been their experience but there's no minimizing or discounting the experience that some of you have had and the ongoing impact of that so while I pray that the word and the spirit of Christ might bring some healing today I also want to say that if you know already that you need to opt out uh, I'm going to pray in a moment and that will be your chance to, to sneak out that's absolutely fine and if you miss that opportunity at any time throughout like it's it's absolutely okay to do that and to look after yourself in in, in that way um, and and want to say whether you stay or, or go I'd encourage you then to, to seek 
the, the wider support and help that you need, whether that's to re-engage in counselling or to seek prayer or to share your story with someone else to, to walk along with you or, or whatever it might look like. So with that said, let's, let's pray and then we'll get into to Judges 19. God, we come to your word this morning and we come knowing that all scripture is breathed of you and that it's then useful for teaching and correcting and rebuking and training in righteousness. We come to your word this morning and we know that it is a living and active word that, that pierces and divides, striking in even to the soul. We come to your word this morning knowing that it does not return to you void but achieves the purposes for which you've sent it out. And so God, as we come to your word this morning, may you do your work in us um, that you would have for it to do. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So the passage, uh, and I won't have it all up on the screen, so if you've got your Bibles, it's Judges 19. The passage starts with this phrase, that in those days... Israel had no king. And the complete story continues beyond just this chapter into the next two as well. And it then finishes with this phrase, that in those days Israel had no king and everyone did as they saw fit. Other more literal translations will phrase it, that everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And so this, this frames the story that we're looking at today. And it tells us that what we are about to read is reflective of what happens when everyone does what's right in their own eyes, which as we've seen throughout the book of Judges, invariably is what is evil in the eyes of the Lord. But why, why this emphasis on there being no king? Why is this such a big deal? Well, because the king, rightly exercising his rule and authority, would both lead the people of Israel in the, in the ways of God and also restrain their inclinations against him. And we see this in the longing of the Jews for the Messiah. They longed for the Messiah to come because he would then inaugurate God's kingdom and where God then would rule with justice and mercy and there would be no need to teach people God's ways because everyone would know them and walk in them. And so in the absence of a king, the people are, are directionless and are unrestrained. And at this point in the story, they don't even have a judge to, to stand in for a king and lead them. And the judges weren't great, but at least they were something. But they don't even have one of those at this time. They are entirely up to their own devices, going their own way. Which I think we need to recognize is fundamentally the reality of sin. Isaiah says that we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have turned to our own way. And that's what we see in the Garden of Eden as first Eve and then Adam take the fruit. They, they rejected God's kingship over them and took on for themselves the, the rule of their own lives and they did as they saw fit, doing their own thing to disastrous consequences. And so this is the frame of our passage today. Israel had no king. And everyone did what was right in their own eyes. In other words, sin reigned. And what makes this story so tragic is this is actually a story about God's people. A people who were blessed in order to be a blessing. A people who were meant to be a light to the nations around them. 
But instead, as we'll see, their, their darkness was as bleak and as desolate as, as anyone else's. So let's get into the story. Now a Levite, who lived in a remote area in the hill country of Ephraim, took a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. But she was unfaithful to him. She left him and went back to her parents' home in Bethlehem, Judah. And after she had been there four months, her husband went to her to persuade her to return. He had with him his servant and two donkeys. And she took him into her parents' home. And when her father saw him, he gladly welcomed him. His father-in-law, the, the woman's father, prevailed on him to stay. So he remained with him three days, eating and drinking and sleeping there. Now, one of the thing, themes that runs throughout this passage, uh, this chapter, is power and its exercise and, and abuse. And we see that at the outset with this nameless, con uh, nameless Levite who took a concubine. Now, concubines, they were common enough at the time. I mean, think of Jacob, who had married both Leah and Rachel and then had both of their maidservants as concubines. They were you know, a servant or a slave, but they were also considered part of the family. They, they were kind of in this in-between thing, not, not quite just a, a plain servant, not quite a full wife, somewhere in, in the middle. They were secondary wives and their function primarily was about childbearing and enlarging the family particularly to produce an heir and so already we see that this is not a relationship of equality and mutuality the power is clearly one-sided but even more than that there's this phrase that the Levite took her as a concubine it's not that he married her but that he took her Fundamentally, she was not you know, a person for him to have a relationship with, but she was property for him to do with as he pleased. And I think this is borne out when he waits four months before going after her. Like, he wanted his stuff back, but he wasn't super concerned about it. That there wasn't an urgency or a heartache about it. Certainly not enough to chase after her immediately. But when he does decide to go after her, it says that he goes to persuade her to return or, or more literally to, to speak to her heart. Now, the text also says that she had been unfaithful to him. And there is some question about the, um, the text at this point with another possibility being that she was angry with him. But either way, with her having left, he comes to persuade her to come back to him. But, but when he gets there, there's actually no record of him talking to her at all. Rather, she simply takes him inside and it's the father-in-law who, who welcomes him in. And I can't help but think that he puts on this public face of a fine, upstanding husband that's in contrast to how things are actually behind the closed doors. It might be too much to read into the text, but, but there's this sense of resignation on her part that she was powerless to do other than just to let him into the house, especially as she was then under the, the, lived under these two men, her, her father and her husband, and lived under their will. And so what agency she had, she had exercised in, in leaving the Levite. But now she loses it again. Because as the story goes on from here, everything now happens to her rather than by her. So we'll read on verse 5. Uh, on the fourth day, they got up early and he prepared to leave. But the woman's father said to his son-in-law, refresh yourself with something to eat, then you can go. 
So the two of them sat down to eat and drink together. And afterward, the woman's father said, please stay tonight and enjoy yourself. And when the man got up to go, his father-in-law persuaded him. So he stayed there that night. On the morning of the fifth day when he rose to go, the woman's father said, refresh yourself, wait till the afternoon. So the two of them ate together. Then when the man with his concubine and his servant got up to leave, his father-in-law, the woman's father said, now look, it's almost evening. Spend the night here, the, the day is nearly over. Stay and enjoy yourself. Early tomorrow morning you can get up and be on your way. But unwilling to stay another night, the man left and went towards Jebus, that, that is Jerusalem, with his two saddled donkeys and his concubine. Now the one positive light in this story is the warm and generous hospitality that is being shown by the concubine's father. I mean, they just literally can't get away. Maybe you've been, you know, hosted it in such a way where it's like, you know, the time's gone, I really need to go, but more food's coming out, more cuppers are being poured, more conversations are being started, and, and before you know it, you were there far longer than you intended. So he's being wildly hospitable, and it stands in stark contrast to the inhospitable actions that come later. But notice something subtle here. In verse 9, it is the man with his concubine and servant who, who get up to leave. But in verse 10, when they finally do get away, it's just the man who left. And the concubine is simply tagging along and she's in the same category as his donkeys. So she was fundamentally not as important, not as significant as this Levite man. And it's then from here on that things begin to get dark. Literally, as the sun begins to set and we move from the day to the night time. But also figuratively, as we see the moral degeneration of the people of Israel as they live this reality of life with no king. And so they, they managed to leave. Verse 11, when they were near Jebus and the day was almost gone, the servant said to his master, come, let's stop at the city of the Jebusites and spend the night. His master replied, no, we won't go into any city whose people are not Israelites. We'll go on to Gibeah. And he added, come, let's try to reach Gibeah or Ramah and spend the night in one of those places. So they went on and the sun set as they neared Gibeah in Benjamin. Then they stopped to, there they stopped to spend the night. They went and sat in the city square, but no one took them in for the night. See, here's the irony. This Levite wouldn't stop in Jerusalem because it was occupied by pagan people. He, he wanted to stay with the Israelites. And yet, when he gets to an Israelite town, they then fail to give him the hospitality that he expected and that he should have been offered. And this, would have been, this should have been unthinkable to happen. But it's a hint already to the dark place that Israel had fallen to. Refuge, though, is finally offered to him by an outsider in the town. So that evening, an old man from the hill country of Ephraim, who was living in Gibeah, the inhabitants of the place were Benjamites, came in uh, from his work in the fields. When he looked and saw the traveler in the city square, the old man asked, Where are you going and where did you come from? He answered, We are on our way from Bethlehem in Judah to a remote area in the hill country of Ephraim where I live. I've been to Bethlehem in Judah, and now I'm going to the house of the Lord. No one has taken me in for the night. I mean, we have both straw and fodder for our donkeys and bread and wine for ourselves, your servants, me, the woman, and the young man with us. We, we don't need anything. 
Well, you are welcome at my house, the old man said. Let me supply whatever you need. Only don't spend the night in the square. So he took him into his house and fed his donkeys. And after they had washed their feet, they had something to eat and drink. Now, before we read on, let's jump back a bit in, in Israel's history. There was a time when God appeared to Abraham. God, God came down from heaven in a, in a human form and, and met with Abraham. And he, he'd come down, he said, to investigate the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, of whom God says to Abraham that their sin is just so grievous that he had come to destroy the cities. Now, Abraham knew that his nephew Lot was in the city of Sodom. And so he begged with the Lord not to destroy the city. If, there were, if there's even like 50 righteous people in the city, God, don't, please don't destroy those cities. And God agreed. But Abraham kept negotiating. God, what if there's not 50, but there's only 45? God agreed. God, what if there's not 45, but there's only 40? God agreed. And he kept going down 30, 20, until he got down to 10. God, what if there's only 10 righteous people? And God agreed that if 10 righteous people could be found in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, he would not destroy those places. And then there's this account in Genesis 19 that really closely parallels what we're about to read in Judges 19. Using at times even almost identical language. Um, and in that story, the cities prove that they are utterly depraved and degraded, that there is not even 10 righteous people to be found. And so God destroys them with only Lot and his family saved. And so Sodom and Gomorrah become these, these cities that are synonymous with sin and the rejection of God and of his ways. But in fairness, they were pagan cities. They never claimed to be following after God and, and his ways. And so there's, they've got that at least somewhat going for them. But it means that the parallels that come now between Sodom and Gomorrah and, and Gibeah, which is a town in Israel inhabited by Benjamites who are of the people of Israel, makes that comparison all the more striking. To contemporize it, we would say that Gibeah is a, is a, it's a Christian city populated by Christian people. But when we look at what goes on there, the behavior is such that would have been found in the unrighteous city of Sodom. So we read on, verse 22. While they were enjoying themselves, some of the wicked men of the city surrounded the house. And pounding on the door, they shouted to the old man who owned the house, bring out the man who came to your house so that we can have sex with him. The owner of the house went outside and said to them, No, my friends, don't be so vile. Since, since this man is my guest, don't do this outrageous thing. Look, here is my virgin daughter and his concubine. I'll bring them out to you now, and you can use them and do to them whatever you wish. But as for this man, don't do this outrageous thing. But the man would not listen to him. So the man took his concubine and sent her outside to them, and they raped her and abused her throughout the night, and at dawn they let her go. At daybreak, the woman went back to the house where her master was staying, fell down at the door, and lay there until daylight. When her master got up in the morning and opened the door on the house and stepped out to continue on his way, there lay his concubine, fallen in the doorway of the house, with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, get up, let's go. But there was no answer. 
Then the man put her on his donkey and set out for home. I think it's here that we need to pause and weep. What we have just read is horrible. Here is a township of God's people being anything but God's people. They fail to offer hospitality in the first place. They violently intrude on the hospitality that is offered. And rather than welcome the stranger, they want to sexually abuse him. They use their power their numbers, their hometown advantage, their strength, not for the good of the vulnerable stranger in their midst, but to attack, to dominate and to overwhelm. This is wrong. And to avoid that, an innocent daughter and a concubine are offered instead, like lambs to the slaughter. So the men in the house use their power, you know, their, their age, their strength, their, their social standing, not for the good of the vulnerable women in their midst, but to protect themselves. This is wrong. However, even that idea doesn't satisfy the townsman. So the Levite physically forces his concubine out to them. In the text it says, sent them out, but, but there's more force behind that. Physically forces his concubine out to them to be gang raped so brutally that she dies from the experience. And the men of their town of the town use their power to slake their lust, to satisfy their desires, to use and degrade the woman. This is wrong. And as if all that is not bad enough. It seems that while all this is happening during the night, the Levite is in bed, sleeping off his drunkenness from his host's hospitality. He is callously, selfishly indifferent. As is further made manifest when he wakes up and just plans to keep on going about his business, telling his concubine simply, get up, let's go. With no thought of what her night had been. She's not a person to him. She's simply an object or a property for his use. Notice in, in verse 27, he's called her master. He does not deserve any longer to be called her husband, which is what he was called at the start of the story. And we are not meant, I don't believe, to be sympathetic to him. Because what has happened to this woman is wrong, is vile is evil. There is no excusing or justifying any of this. And the chapter ends with the Levite putting out a call for the rest of Israel to, to come and to respond to the sin of the, of the Benjamites that's gone on here. Uh, I won't read it now, but I'll leave it for, for David as he picks up the story next time. Because while it might look like that that now the Levite is doing something good, that he's trying to call God's people to come back to act in God's ways, to, to respond in moral outrage to what has gone on in their midst. I actually think it's much more selfishly motivated. And it's a way for him to, 
to try and exercise power over those who are more powerful than him and who dominated him in, in that way. But that's, that's for next time. I'll let David pick that up. But for now, though, what do we do with this? I mean, this is, this is the Bible and this is in it. What do we do with this? And that has been my burning question as I've sat with this passage over the past weeks. And so at the end of the day, I believe that there's a message here for men, a message for women, and a message for all of us. And so to start with the men. And I want to say up front, I recognize that men are not always the abusers. Men are also abused and dominated and exploited and violated by other men and sometimes by women as well. But in this story and in general, it is men who have power. It is men who force themselves on others. It's men who exercise violence against another. And so in that sense, I'm speaking to men, but it's actually a message to anyone with that that power exploitative, you know, and that they use to abuse others. So, so the message to men, and especially to Christian men, is simply this. This should not be. Men, you are not entitled. She does not owe you, and she does not make you do anything. Men, forcing yourself on a woman does not mean that you are strong, powerful or manly. Men, even in the context of a marriage relationship, unwelcome, forced or manipulative advances are not acceptable. And in marriage or out of it, you are not the one who gets to decide what's appropriate and welcome. You are not the one who gets to decide what's simply mucking around and a bit of fun. You do not get to decide what crosses the line. And men, pornography is not and is never okay. Men, whatever power and strength that we have, whatever authority and ability we have, whatever, whatever has been given to us in that way has been given to us to help, not to hurt. It's to use for the benefit of others, not for their harm. And this should then be true, especially in the church which should be a safe place for women and children and all other vulnerable people. In the church, women should know that they are more than their bodies and that they are full people made in the image of God and that they know this because of how the men in the church treat them. What we see in this story in Judges, the behaviour of the men, whether it's the Levite, his host, or the Benjamites, this should not be. And so the second part of the message to men is this. The night is nearly over, the day is almost here, so let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armour of light. Let us behave decently, as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy, but rather clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to satisfy, gratify the desires of the flesh. 
Now, not all of it, but, but the worst of what happened in this story happened in the dark, happened in the night. But we, the scriptures tell us, are children of light. So instead of acting as if we're in the dark, we had to clothe ourselves with Jesus. Men, we had to put on his character, his attitudes, his actions. We had to live consistent with who we are in him. And that has to change everything for us. It changes our attitude towards women. It changes our approach to power. It changes the kinds of actions we engage in. So let us be who we are, which was the great failing of the Benjamites. Let us be who we are, children of light, clothed in Jesus Christ, who use the strength, power, and agency that God has given us for the benefit of others, not for ourselves. And may any woman, any child, any vulnerable person who walks in the doors of this church know that they are safe and valued here. I hope that all of what I've just had to say is unnecessary or irrelevant to the men in this church. But unfortunately, statistically, anecdotally, pastorally, I know that it's not. And so men, this should not be. Jesus calls us to be more and better, to be children of the light. So let's respond to that. So the message for the women. And again, I want to recognize that it's not only women who are abused. But in this story and in general, it is women who have less power in society and who have less agency to stand up for themselves. And so as I speak to women, it is, you know, again, a shorthand for, for all those who have been abused and taken advantage of in, in this way. And the message to women is simply, this should not be. To any of you who have been raped, who have been touched in inappropriate and unwanted ways, who have been the subject of sexist put-downs, who have been controlled and dominated by men, and especially men who are using the scriptures to claim their rights without fulfilling any of their own responsibilities, to any of you who have been degraded and exploited in any of these kinds of ways, I'm sorry, because this should not be. And it grieves the heart of Jesus that his daughters, that his sisters, that his mothers are treated in such a way. And, and so the second part of the message to you is that Jesus, who has come to make all things new, restores dignity and value and takes away the, the shame of the things that you've done and the shame of the things that have been done to you. And there's two stories, among others, that I think really demonstrate this. Maren, can you bring my water, please? Thanks, hon. In John 8, there's a group of Pharisees who, who bring before Jesus a woman who has been caught in adultery. Now, the obvious question is, Where's the man who was caught in adultery? Because as far as I'm aware, it takes two people 
to commit adultery. But it's only the woman who is brought before Jesus. Of course it's only the woman because this is a group of men who are looking out for one of their own as the boys club. And so no, they haven't brought the man. They've just brought the woman. And and think about the scene that's going on. There's this group of men. We don't know how many, but there's a group of them. And one woman. And what's more, they're they're Pharisees. They They have knowledge. They have social power. They have prestige. They have morality on their side. They are fine, upstanding, moral pillars of society. They are powerful and influential men who are dominating and exerting their power over this woman. And they bring her to another man. Now, we don't know if she had previously been caught in adultery and was just kind of being held and brought before Jesus now in their efforts to dominate you know, and control and manipulate him, or if she had literally just been caught in the act. Um, perhaps she was just caught in the act and, and she stood there then, well, if not naked, at most only partially closed, as the men then continue to use that to humiliate and degrade her. And the text says that as she stands before the group, Jesus just bends down to the ground and starts drawing in the dirt. He doesn't engage with the man in their domination or their degradation of her. Instead, what he ends up doing is he challenges them. He holds them to account. He holds up a mirror to their lives for them to see clearly, see themselves clearly. And in the, the result of that is that they end up walking away. And then Jesus stands up and he looks at her. And at this point then, he's the last man standing. He, his challenge was for the one without sin to be the first to throw the stone of her punishment. And he's the only one left. He's the only one who himself was without sin and so able to throw the first stone at her. But instead, he treats her with dignity and with respect. He shows her kindness and compassion. He sees in her the image of God that, yes, has been broken, but that he came specifically to restore. And I like to imagine that she walked away from that encounter with Jesus with her head held high. She may still have been naked or 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 barely covering herself but she didn't care because she was not the object of a man's lust but she was a child of God and she was loved by him and so she knew her worth and that nothing that a man in his lust or a group of men in their power could do nothing would take that away from her and so I picture her walking down the street on her way home utterly untouched by the gaze of men because she knew who she was because Jesus had shown that to her again. The other story is in Luke 7 where a sinful man came to a place where where Jesus was eating and she cried on his feet washing the the dust of the road off with her tears and then dried dried his feet with her hair and perhaps most scandalously then took a, a jar of perfume from between her breasts to pour on them and to anoint them. And meanwhile, the men who were around judged her and looked down on her for being a prostitute while also probably secretly lusting after her. 
And in their feelings of shame, they degraded her with their looks and with their attitudes, if not also with their actions. And again, there's a Pharisee in this story. His name is Simon. He's the owner of the house where, where this meal is taking place. And as he thinks of himself as, oh, so much better than this woman. Jesus holds up the mirror to him as well to confront him with his false and his unwarranted arrogance. And one of the things he says is, Simon, do you see this woman? Because Jesus did see her. He saw not someone used and abused by men. He saw not someone unclean and unworthy. He saw not someone who was beneath him or less than him. Rather, he saw the woman in all of her fullness of her person, in all of her value and her dignity and her glory. He saw her not for what she had done, not for what had been done to her, but for who she was, loved by God, precious in his sight. He sees in her the image of God that has been broken, but that he came to restore. And she walks out of that house then with peace, with shalom, with, with the fullness and the rightness and the wholeness of life, of life restored to what it was meant to be. She walks out made new and whole and restored. Women, this is how Jesus consistently acts towards women, especially those who have been taken advantage of by others, who are, who are vulnerable to the exploitation of others who have power over them. And so my prayer for you is that the blood of Jesus washes away all the shame and the guilt, yes, of the things that you have done, but also of the things that have been done to you and that you walk in the dignity and the value that he restores to you. You are not an object for others to use, but you are a beloved and precious child of God made in his image. Then the message for all of us. The events in Judges 19, they took place when Israel had no king and everyone did as they saw fit. It's a picture of when sin and self reigns and, and the, the result, as we've seen, is horrible. Jesus, though, came and he announced the inbreaking of the kingdom of God, the inauguration of his rule and his reign on earth. And as Christians, we are citizens of the kingdom and subjects of the king. And as such, we then are to live differently. We are to be like our king and to demonstrate his character and to enact his rule, not over society as a whole. I mean, some of us might be called to, to that, but, but to enact his rule just in our own lives. And so today, we all need to come and bow before our king. For some of us, we will bow in repentance acting, uh, recognizing where we acted according to our will rather than his and to bring our lives back into obedience and conformity to him. For some of us, we will bow before him in, in brokenness. 
but doing so recognizing that a bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not snuff out, and instead receive the care, the compassion, the healing that he delights to give. For some of us, we will come to Jesus and bow in profound gratitude, knowing that there but for the grace of God go I. For all of us, we will bow before him in prayer that your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, that he will make all things new and right, that that work that he has started, that he will continue. And to then, in answer to our own prayer, that we will then act to make change in our lives, in our church, in our community, that we would be advocates for the vulnerable, that we would train as counsellors, that we would encourage and support those who are doing that kind of work with others, that we would walk alongside those who are in that journey of healing, that we'd hold one another to account, that we would be safe people. In other words, that we would be the kind of people, individually and collectively, that God calls us to be as we live in his kingdom and under our good King Jesus. And so it's to him that we come now. Let's pray. God, one of the great blessings of your word is that it speaks truth it names reality it doesn't sugarcoat things doesn't try to cover things up or hide anything but shows us the reality of who we are in all of our sinfulness and in all of the glory of who you are restoring us to be one of the things you're, you came to do Jesus was to set captives free and so God I want to pray your release today God for those in whatever way it looks for those who have been abusers and exploiters for those who have dominated and had power over and have taken advantage God, I pray that you would set them free from, that, from the bondage that they are in. This need to find value and significance in being over another. Set them free, God. Free them from that bondage. That they might live to help, not to hurt. To use the gifts that you have given them for the benefits of others, just as Jesus did. And that you would deeply, profoundly change them in their, in their very being. Holy Spirit, we can't make a change happen. We can't enforce something externally, but you, <laughs> you have the power that you exercise in the resurrection of, of Jesus. That power is at work in, in us. And so Holy Spirit, set free the captives. We pray it. And then for those who have been the victims, God, who have suffered, who have been exploited and dominated and, uh, and abused, God, set them free, I ask. 
Set free those captives, free from the, from the shame of that, free from the, the degradation and the diminishment of them that that has caused. Set them free that they might know and walk in the reality of the life that they have in Christ, Christ who makes all things new, Christ who restores and rebuilds and heals Christ who sees the image of God and loves and sees as precious. Again, Holy Spirit, we can't make ourselves believe these things about ourselves. But by your power at work within us, help us to see the truth of ourselves in the eyes of Jesus. Loved, beloved, precious, valued, with dignity, and worth. Amen. And for all of us, God, set us free. Set our voices free that we would speak up when things need to be spoken. Set our lives free that we would not, you know, just live politely with each other, but that we'd hold each other to account, that we'd call out behaviors where we're needed. Set us free, that we might be your free people who you call us to be, and that as such, then we can bring your freedom to others who need it. God, I pray for your church in general, but here, this gathering of your people. May we be good citizens of the kingdom under our good and glorious king, living the life that you would call us to. May we be safe people. May we be a safe place. May this be a place of healing and of refuge. May it be a sanctuary for the broken. And that you would work in our, our midst. God, Judges 19 tells us that when we don't submit to you, when we don't follow you, man, the, the darkest, deepest, worst stuff can come out of us. And so we repent of that. It's in our hearts, if not in our actions. And so we want to we turn away from that and come out of the dark and to live as the children of the light that you have called us to be and to clothe ourselves then in with Jesus Christ. And so we pray this as we come to him in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, sister. Mm-hmm.